0: Mr. President, Your Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen. Um, My name is Peter Sutherland, I'm the Chairman of the Board of Governors of LSE and I want to welcome you to the LSE campus today. Um, We're really honoured and delighted to have you, President, with us. Somebody that many of us admire greatly. A man who is committed to Europe and committed to European integration. And this afternoon's lecture is uh, the new academic year's first event of LSE's uh, European Institute and APCO Worldwide Perspectives on Europe Lecture Series. And there couldn't be a more appropriate person to deliver that lecture. And there couldn't be a more appropriate time for the lecture to be delivered than this moment of great challenge for Europe, a challenge which you, sir are helping us to face. Um, <clears throat> other speakers in the series this autumn include Professor Philip Bobbitt from Columbia University, Mark Leonard from the European Council on Foreign Relations, and Dr Heinz Fischer, President of the Republic of Austria, and details of the events as well as the rest of the public events program here at the school can be found on the events website. As I said, it's a great pleasure to welcome Hermann von Rompuy to LSE this afternoon. He is, of course, the first, what I might describe as a long-term president, the longer the better as far as I'm concerned, of uh, the uh, uh, European Union, um, the European Council, to be more specific. Um, trained as an economist and philosopher at Louvain University, the training in both of those disciplines will be necessary to deal with current events. Uh, He served as Belgium's Prime Minister from 2008 to to 2009, Speaker of the Belgian Lower House 2007-2008, and before that Budget Minister from 1993 to 1999, before assuming his current position in December 2009. So his speech this afternoon couldn't be more timely, having regard to the global economic turbulence and particular to the turbulence and the issues that are raised in the context of the Euro and the uh, issues which uh, are troubling many of us. For those Twitter users in the audience, uh, and perhaps for you also, uh, Mr. President, my sources uh, tell me that you have a Twitter account, not merely have you got a Twitter account, but you have a massively used Twitter account, and your Twitter name is EUHVR, the hashtag I'm not up to this stuff, really. The hashtag for today's event is HatchLSEEuro. Uh, <clears throat> I'm glad I got through that without a major mistake, or at least I assumed that I didn't make a major mistake. As usual, after the lecture, there will be a chance for you to put your questions uh, to Mr Van Rompuy. Um, and by that, I mean members of the audience, not members of the, of the press. This is to be an audience participative uh, uh, occasion. And um, so will you please join me now in welcoming President van Rompuy to LSE to deliver his lecture entitled Beyond the Crisis, Lessons for the Future of the Eurozone. President.
1: <laughs> Mr. Chairman, dear Peter Sutherland, It is an honor and a privilege to speak here at the London School of Economics today, being an economist or a former economist. Bringing together, as this university does, economics and political science is highly valuable. When I studied economics more than 40 years ago, I was much taken by, at that time, Ralf Dahrendorf, who later was a famous LSE director and played so many roles in British, German, European society. His brand of political economics was fascinating reading. I studied at another venerable institution with an even older history than the London School, University of Leuven. One of my professors belonging, belonged to the Werner Group, the Luxembourg Premier at that time, Pierre Werner, which developed the first plan for a European Monetary Union. I'm speaking now about 70-71. My brother wrote a PhD about Britain and the European Monetary Union in 75. And that's why I discovered the work of Robert Mundell on the optimal currency area the Nobel Prize winner of '99, who still defends the Euro. He, by the way, he received an honorary doctorate from the London School. To the academic and purely theoretical thinking of the 70s, we can now add the political experience of more than 12 years of the single European currency. Most urgent is to draw the lessons from the recent crisis. From the global roller coaster, which started four years ago, and reached a decisive turn in Europe in early twenty ten, when the Greek problem exploded upon the stage. But let me start with some expectation management, as some of you may know. Six weeks ago, I was asked by the seventeen heads of state or government of the eurozone to propose, I'm quoting improvements to crisis management in the Euro area by October. It could be tempting to share some of my ideas with you of today. However, unlike some of the other players, I do not practice megaphone diplomacy via the media. I prefer quiet diplomacy. It is more discreet but also more efficient. The main points I want to share with you are these. Overall, the Euro and the single market have been a help, not a hindrance. Important work has been done to prevent similar crises and to deal with the current one with further steps in the months ahead. The political implications of these developments are not fully crystallized yet. Let us start with some positives. Although obvious, they should not be taken for granted. Europe was hit three years ago by the biggest economic tsunami since the Great Depression. Yet we avoided most of the mistakes that we made in the 30s. We avoided protectionism in no small part thanks to the single European market and the legislation that backs it up. We largely avoided competitive currency devaluations in no small part thanks to the euro. Just imagine for one moment what would have happened three years ago if we had still had the franc, the peseta, the mark, the guilder, and so on. There would have been turmoil on the currency markets upsetting import and export expectations in addition to the turmoil we already had it would have shaken, if not destroyed, the internal market. Even now, at the global level, we must take care that exchange rates reflect the economic fundamentals rather than being an element of protectionism. Let us not forget the euro remains fundamentally solid as a currency. It has strengthened in value on international monetary markets unlike the pound and the dollar. It has brought its existence maintained it has throughout its existence maintained a low and stable inflation rate. Its balance of payments the current account is in broad equilibrium. Public debt levels are on average lower, yes, lower than in the United States or in Japan. And the euro is being held across the world as an alternative reserve currency. Economic growth has returned to the eurozone as a whole rapidly after the financial crisis. Higher than expected last year, and in the beginning of the year, though less than expected this semester. So, we did some things right. I confess, we did some things right. But, as we all know, there were also a number of problems. Some are long-term and structural, not least our insufficient economic growth rates in aging societies. The Europe 2020 strategy is intended to respond to this, and we must return to it. We must further develop the single market, our great asset, and we will do so. Growth and jobs remain priorities. Job creation is currently the major issue in the United States and in many EU member states too. It is essential that we identify how and where the Europeans of today and tomorrow can earn their money. This is about seizing opportunities, about education, technological and social innovation and future perspectives. The issue touches every citizen and the political world must provide some of the answers. Nevertheless, what has dominated the headlines and our attention is the issue of sovereign debt. Excessive debt is a problem that has hit a number of countries across the world, not only in Europe. But its existence in some Eurozone countries has had an impact right across the Eurozone and indeed the single market. We have discovered that three countries, representing about 6% of the GDP of the euro area, could threaten the financial stability of the eurozone, as well as the stability of the banking sectors in all our member states. A lack of financial oversight played its role, but clearly financial and monetary interdependence had been hugely underestimated. Without the fiscal irresponsibility in some countries, there would never have been a crisis in the Eurozone. It is as simple as that. It may be useful to remind you that when the crisis erupted, we had to start from scratch. There was a complete absence of appropriate instruments. There was even an interdiction to take certain times of action. There was the no bail-out clause. Politically, it was also difficult to act, both in the debtor countries, which had to accept reform programs with strict conditionality, and in the creditor countries, who guarantee the loans. Nevertheless, May 2010, we did establish a completely new economic governance framework including a support mechanism for countries in difficulties. And recently, we made the latter more flexible while assuming the right conditionality. What we have put in place is a multifaceted reform. People who only focus on one or another aspect and rush to denounce them as insufficient miss the overall picture and the interactions between the elements. In the overall combination of institutional pressure peer pressure and market pressure that will help to avoid getting into such difficulties again. All three have been enhanced. Institutional pressure has been strengthened thanks to a set of reforms, in particular a strengthening of the budgetary surveillance, improved stability and growth pact, making it easier to sanction a member States, and the establishment of a macroeconomic surveillance which did not exist before. We will together look not only at deficits and debt levels, but also at risks of asset bubbles or trade imbalances. Institutional pressure, peer pressure. Peer pressure has also been enhanced. For instance, through the so-called European semester, where all member states will compare notes on their national budgets and where budgetary and economic policies are evaluated. But also through the new EuroPlus Pact, under which 23 out of 27 countries have committed to structural reforms, for instance on pensions or the labor market. And what's more, today's governments realize acutely how the economic situation of others affect their own and vice versa. Phone calls between European political leaders on their respective debt are now almost daily bread. A very concrete translation of the abstract notion of interdependence. After peer pressure, institutional pressure, thirdly market pressure. Market pressure will complement the above in a way in which it did not in the past. In the first decade of the euro, the markets were asleep. Now they are awake and even if they are sometimes overreacting, they will not go back to sleep again. The problem was that market signals were not being transmitted in an early, and more gradual way to states whose debt levels rose dangerously high or whose current account deficits were unsustainable. The interplay between these types of pressure should not be underestimated. Take the peer pressure. Some fear that governments will water down commissions' recommendations as happened in the past. They forget a new element at play, a major incentive to keep an eye on one's peers, the billions involved in the rescue mechanisms. If after a European Commission warning, ministers for some reason let a colleague off the hook and if at a later stage the country in question asked for emergency loans, their public opinion would want to know how could you let this happen markets too would react to such events more speedily than in the past I personally am convinced that still more needs to be done I will make a number of proposals in October I will not disclose them here in detail a word though on the emerging consensus around the idea that the Eurozone be strengthened institutionally. It is natural. The crisis of the last three years has proven that the big decisions, the long-term orientations to safeguard the Eurozone's financial stability can only be taken at the highest level. In order to deal with the banking crisis of 2008, The first meeting of Eurozone's heads of state or government was organized by the the then European Council President Nicolas Sarkozy. By the way, Gordon Brown was a special guest at that summit of the Eurozone in Paris. I have chaired four such meetings, last year and this year, each time in exceptional circumstances. It is a good idea to meet more regularly, and not only in periods of tensions. Gouverner, se prévoir. To govern is to foresee. At the same time, we must keep the link between the 17 of the Eurozone and the 27 of the European Union. The Euro affects the single market and vice versa. The Euro affects the financial sector all over Europe. And Moreover, many will join the Eurozone in the future. That have to if they meet the criteria, and this is, according the Lisbon Treaty. Ladies and gentlemen, all these measures will help in the long run, to improve the eurozone's economic performance. But of course, there remains the short term problem. How do we turn the corner on the existing cases of excessive debt? In recent weeks and months, the focus has been on Greece. Here, too, there is a danger that commentators focus on one or another measure deeming it to be insufficient, while in fact it is on the whole panoply of measures that we must evaluate what has been decided. At the Eurozone Summit of the 21st of July, we agreed three things to help Greece reduce its debt. First, to provide additional funding to support the Greek program up to 2014. Second, we supported for Greece and for Greece only the voluntary involvement of private bondholders. It will reduce the Greek public debt burden by more than 10%. And third, we lowered the interest rates on the loans for Greece and even more importantly, we extended the maturities up to 30 years. This significantly lifts the burden of repayments and it gives them time. And we also reduced the interest rates for Portugal and for Ireland. Ladies and gentlemen, when I became Budget Minister of Belgium in the early 90s, my country had a public debt burden of over 130% of GDP. Let's say Greek levels. In the 80s, interest payments on the public debt amounted to 10% of GDP. Compare this with the 6% of Greece today. Yet we turned the corner. In 2007, our debt burden had reduced to 85%. A more recent example is that of Latvia. So it can be done, provided that time is given. The priority now is for all countries to implement what we have decided. This is true for Greece and for others. For each individual and for our collective decisions, implementing rather than unpicking what we have agreed is vital. This brings me to to my concluding remarks. When taking these decisions, several countries have gone far beyond that their traditional positions and red lines for the simple reason that the euro and their own economies were at stake. Of course, one may have wished to take these steps earlier, but these decisions represent deep changes, triggering important and legitimate political debates. There is a debate about the tension between the time of democracy and the time of the markets, between the weeks, months, years of legislative procedures in a parliament and the days, minutes or even seconds of a mouse click which determine the rhythm of the trading floor. Sometimes for you at London School to reflect upon. There also is the debate about the political direction in which the Eurozone is heading. Then sometimes terms like political union, fiscal union are used, which give easily rise to enthusiasms, fears and misunderstandings. Let us be clear what such terms are about and what they are not about. On political union I can be short. For some it is a future nightmare, for others a profound aspiration. I belong to another pragmatic school of thought. The Eurozone and the European Union are deeply, deeply political. It started as a political project with one aim, keeping the peace in Western Europe. And look at ourselves today. We are a club of 27 states with common institutions dealing with foreign policy, security, key economic questions, some aspects of migration. The environment and other ones. In what way is this union not already political? The euro itself was launched to create irreversible ties between the participants, triggering further integration. The second term, fiscal union, gives rise to even more interpretations. Of course, we have had since the Maastricht Treaty a joint commitment of member states to avoid excessive deficit and debt levels, so all walking in the same direction as regards fiscal policy. But some people imply there is somewhat more to fiscal union. However, we should keep a sense of proportion, as most other scenarios which the term covers are highly improbable. For instance, fiscal union does not mean transferring a substantial amount of taxation and spending to the European level. At present, 98% of public spending is national or subnational. Only 2% goes through the EU budget. This situation is most unlikely to change drastically, I put it mildly, if at all. Nor will fiscal union mean fixing common tax rates of or everything. The current argument about common tax rates only applies to certain limited and defined fields like the VAT is anyway primarily about fair competition in the single market and not about overall macroeconomic stances. We need, we need more tax coordination, certainly in the field of corporate taxes knowing that decisions in this field require unanimity. Fiscal union could of course mean increases in transfers from the richer to the poor member states. But Member States have already indicated their reluctance to radically increase the level of structural funds. But these funds, which have been of great benefit, express the key value of solidarity in our Union and can, of course, be more focused to better underpin economic reform. And finally, we we are challenged by the markets concerning the discrepancy between the perceived weak degree of fiscal policy integration and the high level of monetary financial interdependence. The discrepancy between a common currency and divergent national policies. We have taken major steps to address this. On the one hand, strengthening fiscal responsibility at national levels. On the other hand, developing loan facilities for countries facing difficulties. We could consider further steps over the medium term and this is more and more a part of public debate in my view fiscal and financial integration in this respect has to go hand in hand with fiscal discipline without the latter we would be making the same mistake as when the euro was launched a two week policy infrastructure by all means it will require careful deliberation about the political conditions and in that respect drawing the lessons from this crisis is a work in progress. Ladies and gentlemen I've spoken about the challenges at European level and within the Eurozone. This of course course is not to forget that many of the challenges we face must be addressed at the world level. The G20 remains the most promising vehicle for doing so but it is not without its problems. Domestic concerns, also here, hinder a deepening of global cooperation. But all main players have to do their homework. From the American and Japanese debt problem to Chinese inflation and its undervalued exchange rate, both phenomena are linked. The upcoming G20 summit in Cannes is an opportunity to be seized to enhance global governance course, we have to know the international agenda is blocked, though around on trade, the climate conference, and the international monetary reform, not to mention purely political issues such as the Middle East peace process. Ladies and gentlemen, in the Eurozone and in the European Union, we are taking decisions which are often unpopular in an era of populism. The European Union will do what it takes, step by step, but keeping the right direction. In the current generation of leaders, the current generation of leaders will not destroy the work of the founding fathers of 60 years ago, nor the efforts of successive governments of 6, 9, 12 and now 27 member states. The political and economic costs of going back are mind-boggling. Seen in the light of history, the European Union is too precious an achievement to put in jeopardy. I say this in a calm and determined way. This generation in politics will do what must be done. Thank you.
0: Thank you, President. Uh, We now have the opportunity to open the floor to to questions. (laughs) I would ask those who wish to ask a question to state their names and their affiliation Uh, before putting them. I would ask that their questions should be concise and clear, and there are roving microphones to to be used. I'll take that gentleman at the end here. Yes, please. Hello.
1: Hello, it's Paul Mason from uh, BBC Newsnight. Um,
0: Sir? Uh, I I should have said at the outset that we are not taking questions from members of the press. Well, can I
1: just just ask you, it's very difficult to hear (laughs) you... Well, come on, it's very difficult to hear you refusing to share your proposals to the European people. If, for example, you're in favour of eurobonds, surely you should state that you're in favour of them. That's not megaphone diplomacy, is it? It's just democracy.
0: Do you want to answer the question? We will will, will move on to it. I don't want to take questions from the press. I made that clear at the outset. Now, may I have a question here from this gentleman?
1: Yeah, uh, Bernard Casey from this Warwick is
0: not a press. I'm sorry. I want to make it clear. This is not a press conference, and it has always been the case in LSE that we involve the members of the audience, and we do not use it as an opportunity for a press conference. So I'm sorry about it, but that's it, and that's a ruling. Yes. Ber- sorry, please. Yeah,
1: Bernard Casey <clears> from Warwick University and LSE. Um, You come here as the president of the European Council. Now, I remember once upon a time somebody in America who wanted to know who he picked up the telephone to speak to. At the moment, I can identify four presidents. there is Mr Barroso, there is yourself, there is Mr. Juncker, and there is Mr. Trichet. So we have four presidents, and i 'm not quite sure where these four presidents always talk the same language, and indeed, they sometimes criticise one another. Um, could we have some lessons from four presidents, please? You haven't to exaggerate all this in all in all. States there is a Governor of the central bank, even in the United States there is in most states a prime minister there is in most states a president of uh, of the republic let's let's put it in that way and there is a minister of finance uh, i will I let you the choice who is wh- who is who uh, but we are four of us, but in, in a state, we are not a full state, we are a union, but l- let's say that in, in a, let's put it in this way, in, in a state, that kind of uh, political personalities uh, is completely normal. So, the union is not different from other ones. What we have to do more, because we are scrutinized more than, than others, uh, well, is to to have more (coughs) coordinated positions. But I can assure you that uh, you don't find a lot of differences of view between Mr. Barroso, Trichet, Juncker and Van Rompuy because we are coordinating a lot already. What's much more difficult is to coordinate with the 17 member states. That's a more difficult exercise. And that is part of the mission I have, preparing a report on economic governance for October, is that how can we not speak with one voice, because when you have 17 democracies, you, you, you can speak with one voice, but how can we give with all those actors, not only in Brussels, but also in the Member States, how can we give the same message, we can deliver the same message. And so that, that's an, an important mission I have, but as far as our institutional building is concerned, that is really not much different from other states.
0: Next question. This gentleman here, please. Thank you. Name and affiliation, please. Uh,
2: George Hadjul is a former LSE student and also uh, an employee of Societe Generale. Uh, As a representative of the markets, let me, let me put something that you, you invoke the power of the markets and the discipline of the markets in the system that will uh, coordinate the European Union in the future. Right now, uh, the markets are charging far more for protection against default by Germany than they are of the recently uh, downgraded United States. They're also charging f- a little bit more than for protection against the United Kingdom Whenever this comes up, and I've had several conversations with some of the people in this room on this issue, um, the markets are charged to be irrational. Now, they're either going to be invoked as part of the discipline process, or they're irrational. Which is it?
1: I didn't understand the beginning of your, your statement about Germany. What do you say exactly on Germany? Uh,
2: well, in, in the markets you trade uh, 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 CDS. These are contracts where you can buy protection against German
1: government
2: bonds. It costs you more to buy these at the moment than it does to buy United States protection or United Kingdom protection. Now, given what you said earlier, (coughs) what the market is telling you, and I can confirm this, is that they're not very confident in the direction that the European Union's taking at the moment. Whenever this comes up in conversations at senior levels, we're told, well, the market is irrational. The CDS market is speculative, etc. Et mm-hmm. But it's the same market that's going to be imposing the discipline you invoked in your speech. It can't be both. You have to make a decision.
1: What I'm saying is this that the markets are giving signals. But as far as the history, the small history of the Eurozone is concerned, the first 10 years. There were a lot of underlying problems in the Eurozone. In some countries, they had even deficits on the current account of 15%. There was no indication, no indication that the markets were uh, uh, aware of that, of that problem. Now, there is an overreaction the smallest problem becomes of a major problem. That's what I call the, there is some irrationality in the markets, but there's also in, in society, there's also even in the political world, it's part of life. But the markets are in some way also putting pressure, and as I said, putting pressure so that at least in the Eurozone, Governance and parliaments put their house in order certainly for the weak economies and that besides the peer pressure besides the institutional pressure there is market pressure even if it is unperfect it is a signal that can be helpful to act rapidly problem is that some countries have to correct it and they need time and markets have not the same patience as the political decision-making. That's why in all this, implementation of what we decided is absolutely key. Not only at the level of the Union, not only collectively, but also in the member states. And so it was not a good signal that one country, after having taken bold decisions changed some decisions a few weeks later. Now they corrected them. It was not a good signal that after other bold decisions taken by another country we discovered some slippage a few weeks later. They are correcting this. So we have to create more conditions of confidence and trust Sometimes the markets are overreacting the slightest slippage huh, and the slightest uh, wrong maneuver. But in general, they are putting the pressure so that they are obliged to correct. But what we are doing is using this market pressure but at the same time giving also time to weak economies. And that's why in the facility, in the FEFSF we give time to to, to at least three countries to adjust their budgetary situations and to correct over time also their competitiveness. You know, correct, correcting that kind of imbalances, that takes time in democracies, that takes time. I give you the example of Belgium. We survived all this, even with public debt levels and public deficits were incredibly high. The beginning of the 80s when I started my career in Belgium we had a public deficit of 15% one 1.5 five, one five. Now we are even without now the government the federal government without, we have one of the deficits the lowest in the eurozone the lowest in the eurozone So we have to give all those countries time and that's why public sector is intervening it but the pressure on the markets are helping so that there is still that incentive to work in the right direction besides, as I said, peer pressure and institutional pressure.
0: Gentleman, the blue shirt at the back. Thank you. Uh,
1: Mr. President,
2: my name name is uh, Andreas Kutras ITC. Uh, Mr. President, apart from the budget deficits in the EU, we also have a huge democratic deficit. Uh, The living proof is your office. Um, I as a European never voted for it in fact I think only 27 eligible voters voted for, for your office um, why should I be a member
1: of such a union especially now that financial decisions are imposed to peripheral countries without me as a European having the power to actually vote them down if for example they got it wrong If you understood you rightly, you hope Wednesday that you can vote for me. <laughs> <laughs> but what uh, what I'm doing is much simple, much more simple than 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 you can imagine. I'm chairing a meeting four times, six times eight times these these days, a meeting of heads of state, of government and each of them have the highest legitimacy legitimacy you can imagine. They are elected by their own people. I was once elected also. And they have chosen one of them one of them to chair the meetings, to prepare the meetings and to prepare the decisions. But they are taking the decisions and they are more than democratically elected. And they wanted someone, somebody of them, uh, of them to chair that kind of meeting and they are asking him not to have a national mandate, so that he is more free to prepare a compromise. He doesn't take into account his national interests. He's a free and independent man. So he can walk on a consensus between those 27 democratic leaders or in the Eurozone even the 17 democratic leaders. But they take the decision. I'm not taking the decisions. I'm helping them in some way a facilitator so that decisions can be taken in order to preserve the financial stability of the Eurozone, but in general, the general interest of the Union, which coincides, a lot of times, with the national interests. So I'm not pretending, from the very first day of my mandate, that uh, I'm the Obama of, uh, of, uh, although my charisma don't underestimate (laughs) I'm not pretending it at all. <laughs> I am somebody who tries to find a consensus, as did as I did in Belgium, and I am very happy that in very difficult circumstances, we could reach agreements the last one and a half year, and I will continue this job if those democratic leaders agree with my appointment. But that, it, it is as simple
0: as that. Thank you. <laughs> Question in the middle here.
3: I'll, I'll, Peter. My, yes. is Tim Frost, uh, from uh, an asset manager called Camp Capital. I'm also proud to be one of uh, Peter Sutherland's governors here at, at the school. Uh, Mr. President, if the response to the crisis requires closer integration with
1: Eurozone countries, How would you envisage the institutional relationships
3: working with those members of the Union who are not members of the Eurozone? Would you expect that that would require some kind of treaty renegotiation?
1: And would you envisage or could you contemplate the possibility of that leading to a
3: very significant change in the relationships between those members of the the Union, including, of course, the United Kingdom, who are not uh, members of
0: of the Eurozone?
1: Thank you for that uh, that question. Uh, The Eurozone uh, counts 17 members now. According to the Lisbon Treaty the members European Union members are obliged to become a member of the Eurozone if they meet the criteria and if they desire to do so. There are at least two countries express their will never to belong to the Eurozone. That's their own choice. But most of them are in some way obliged to become members. The enthusiasm, the, the enthusiasm these days is not as high as it was <laughs> in previous times. But the 1st of January we had a new member, Estonia in the middle of the, of the crisis of the Eurozone. So that, that's one clarification. Second is that we share with the 27 a lot of things. Now speaking about the economic field, and the most important one is the common market. That we share. So we can, in the Eurozone, not take measures which belong to the competencies of the 27. We can't agree, we can't agree on Matters who requires unanimity from the twenty seven as far as taxes are concerned, for instance, so I think uh, we have to very are very, very careful that uh, we keep the links between the twenty seven and the seventeen so I find it a good idea to ask the president of the European council to be also become the president of the Council of the eurozone, uh, because that is also also some kind of personal union but we have to do more than that and that's why I will propose that when we meet at the highest level with, when we meet at the, hi- at the highest level in the, in the eurozone, so, so what we can call a Euro summit or a Euro council that will each time be in the slipstream of a European council so that if members of the the non euro members let's say the ten have concerns of objections with what we will decide but because they are perfectly informed right? uh, with the seventeen we can discuss it already in the in the European council i had one uh, one great experience i never told this um, but we had uh meeting of the council in March 2010 we started I think at 5 o'clock and I uh, had provided a meeting of the Eurozone because we had the first of our crisis meetings uh, two two hours later around let's say 8 o'clock and we met at 8 o'clock only with the 17 under my chairmanship we went back at 10 o'clock in the European council then the members of the Council were informed about what we decided with the seventh, with, with the, at that time, the 16th. We corrected our communique, the Eurozone, after interventions of the members of the European Union. But they rightly said this and this and this, that there is, these are our competences. So, we can be very flexible taking into account, as I said, the interests of the 27 and the 17. But the the non-euro members have to be fully aware that we have something special. We have a common currency and our lives depend on this. So that we meet separately, take decisions separately, that's normal. But we have to do this, as I said, in close relationship with the non-euro members because we have so much in common.
0: Next this gentleman here, please. Second row. Kostas-Kaplan <coughs> is not affiliated. Is it possible for a member country of the eurozone to unilaterally abandon it and if so, are there sufficiently robust institutional arrangements uh, for the Eurozone to cope with it?
1: No, there's nothing provided for leaving the Eurozone. Eurozone is not a cafe. You go <laughs> in and you go <laughs>
0: out. Next question, please. Anyone up here? Yes, up here. Is there somebody here? Yep.
2: Uh, thank you. Uh, Sheila Page, Overseas Development Institute. In the conclusion of your remarks, you referred to the EU as precious, which is something which certainly the generation which created it would agree, which even those of our generation would more or less take for granted, but we're not probably typical of the average age of those who are present here. What are you going to do in your proposals to restore the enthusiasm not just the cost-benefit analysis reasons for staying in the EU and the Eurozone? Mm
1: -hmm. First of all, the European idea in some way is in crisis in this sense that it doesn't create the same enthusiasm as a few decades ago. But that is not only the case for the European idea. That's also for a lot of other overarching ideas, ideas that mobilize a country as a whole. Our societies have become more polarized and more divided. See also what happened in the United States. So, less enthusiasm for the European idea is not an isolated case. That's my first remark. We are facing a much broader crisis in society than only the crisis of the European idea. But that may not prevent us to work hard to keep this alive because if in some way an idea is not in the hearts and the minds the idea as idea, and I'm not speaking about the Eurozone and all those currency problems and so on, but is in danger. You need, finally, public support. You need public support for keeping a country together, that the United Kingdom is still united, that a, a country as Belgium is still a united country. You need more than just a calculation about the added value, huh? Eh? but also what the French call, uh, we need un supplément d'âme, I can't translate it in, uh, in, in in English, but something more than only inspired by calculation and profits and benefits and interests. And then we have to work hard on it. Uh, but the first condition, of course, is to show that the institutions are working, are producing results in terms of living of standards, of fight against uh, poverty, in creating employment, in having a well-ordered migration migration flow, so that we can show that this is working. And and, and the problem today is that certainly in the Eurozone, the general feeling is what we are doubting about the, the, the final outcome. So we, we, have, we, we can convince people by results, but as I said, we need more than that. But this is a precondition that we show that we can produce results. But in general, I think the leadership and those who have responsibilities before people and uh, in education and other places, but, but those who can speak to people, speaking positively about a European project showing that they believe in it for c- different kind of reasons is attractive you can only create enthusiasm, enthusiasm when you are enthusiastic yourself hmm. and so that, uh, that that's the, the difficult task we have and what I'm trying here is to show my enthusiasm so that <laughs> it's a little bit more supplement than before I came here
0: can, can I'm going to abuse my position by asking a question. Is it possible, as the euro is linked, absolutely linked, to the completion of the internal market, it was brought into existence because of fears that devaluations in one area of this internal market would create ultimately barriers to trade within the European Union? And the question I want to ask is this. For those who look forward to the day, and there are plenty of them in this city and maybe some in this room, that the euro fails, would they be faced in the event of such a failure with such monetary confusion that the internal market, the fabled common market, would no longer exist?
1: In my speech I said we learned some lessons from the 30s in the 30s you had what we call the beggar my neighbor policy Uh, that comes from my economic studies uh, but the beggar my neighbor triggered by competitive devaluations you can say about the euro what you wanted to say these days but in those difficult years 2008-2009 without the euro I'm not sure that we had kept the single market and that we survived the financial crisis because it created a zone of monetary stability in an instable world at that day. And so I, I'm, I'm more than ever convinced that we have to keep uh, that zone of monetary stability and that we have to keep the financial Stability uh, to guarantee the financial stability of uh, of the eurozone. Our problem was that the financial crisis showed also that's typical for a crisis the structural structural weaknesses of the architecture and of some economies neglected in the good years, uh, and that we have to correct. We have to correct. I think for the future, I'm quite confident that what we decided on stricter rules of economic governance and not what we will decide, but we will go further than that. (laughs) I'm I'm quite quite sure that uh, that we will keep the the eurozone uh, with with that kind of new measures. But in the meantime, we have to, to survive and to overcome this crisis. And that's a daily work, stepwise approach, Uh, I understand that nobody is enthusiastic every day, we neither, Uh, but we will succeed, we will succeed.
3: Yes, here in the second row. David Haney, House of Lords. Um, I wonder, President, if you could comment on this question. Are there any of the policies of the current British government which are not fully consistent with the economic policies being pursued by the Eurozone members? Uh, and indeed, could you answer the same question about, say, the Swedish or the Danish government? If that is so, if your answer is no, they are basically all trying to achieve the same thing and recognising the needs of the same disciplines, wouldn't it be important when you come to make your proposals in October to reduce the amount of separation between the 17 and the 27 and the Euro Plus Pact, which are all beginning to proliferate into different little groups and try to bring out the fact that there is not as much difference between them as all that, except on the operation of some of the market mechanisms.
1: I certainly will not, I will not comment on the policies of, of different member states. If I do so, then I can leave my job. So, If I have observations to make, I will make them uh, directly to those who are responsible, but it's not my task to do it in public. But in general, you're right. And I I give you an example that we do more than simply uh, cooperate, consult, uh, and, and so on. The Stability and Growth Pact and the macroeconomic surveillance are applicable to the 27. Simply, the non-Euro members uh, are there are no sanctions provided for the non-Euro members, but all the mechanisms, recommendations, and so on are the same for the 27. Uh, and they have interest, of course, to, to to comply with with the rules on which we agreed, even if there are no immediate sanctions. So we have also this in common: the European Parliament is on the edge of. Uh, agree on what we call the six-pack on economic governance. It is the European Parliament of the, all the 27 member states. So uh, we ha- we have a lot of not only the but uh, in this way we have not only a single market in common. We have a lot of rules in common. But and I answered already to a question. My my final remark is that if I make if I make proposals for the 17 it will be in cooperation with the non-euro members. I will not put on the table the 18th or the 19th of October, something for the 17th, not having consulted, informed, not having cooperated with the others. And I say this to David Cameron just a few hours ago not only to, to avoid misunderstanding but because we belong to the same family but we have something very special in common with the 70 that is a common currency and as you know this is a masterpiece in economic policy with broad implications. It is not only having a currency and monetary policy in common you can't, can't have monetary policy in common without having more in common in terms of economic policy so we have something in, in the, in the very specific, and we have to, to. It is in the interest of the non-Euro members that the eurozone is stable, and so we, we have to take specific measures to the, so that it can keep. It can, can, that it can keep it stable, but as I said, and I repeat it, in close cooperation with the non-Euro members.
0: Gentlemen here. <coughs>
1: Hello, uh, Stratos Hatshiyanis from NBGI. Um, you mentioned that the um, member states' uh, part being of the club is not something that is considered. The markets seem to occasionally, in durations that they're going through, to, to feel differently and try to push the executive in the European Union to react. What sort of uh, reactions you have in stock, or what is the, 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 the armory that you have? And have you created some uh, situation where you know what would happen if the markets push you even her- further? And how, what is the solution? Is it more federalism? And how far this federalism would go? Including, as some people have said, some common issues of bonds and things like that. Mm-hmm. I think that, that is written in the stars that one of the lessons that that we have to draw from the, the, the current crisis is that we need more fiscal integration but not without fiscal discipline and it is not a solution tomorrow to say, oh, let's, uh, let's create uh, what we call euro bonds and put all the, 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 the sovereign bonds in one basket, the, the good ones, the bad ones, the weak ones, the strong ones, and, and, and we have we do something together. Eh? No. We can envisage all this. We have to consider all options, but always in the framework of fiscal discipline. Does this help? fiscal discipline because that is a prerequisite for fiscal integration and as the French president said and I said it many times, you can consider it you can consider it as a, the ultimate stage of integration. I don't know if it is the right proposal and I don't know at all uh, if there is a consensus on it, but we have to consider every option but always. In the sense that we need more fiscal and financial integration if we want to keep the Eurozone stable. We did already a lot. I mentioned the Euro Plus Pact. I mentioned the so called six pack on economic governance, on which we finally found an agreement with the European Parliament. But we have to do more. But it is written in the stars. That we need more in order to keep monetary union uh, uh, livable and monetary union uh, as a, uh, stable.
0: The man with the beard. The <coughs> last one. Dangerous. <coughs> and, and just one more after. And, yeah, and, and there'll be just one more That's question good. after that. Yes, yes please. Uh, Graham Bishop, in, Independent. Uh, President, you made two references in your speech to uh, commentators misunderstanding or misinterpreting failing to grasp some of the policy measures. Now, you also mentioned about the instant response of the financial markets. The problem is, and it was epitomized at the very beginning by Paul Mason down there, the news market nowadays, for better or worse, is also instant response. So what is it that you can do, the, uh, the Presidency, the Commission, to provide in the communiques all the information which the journalists need to have in order to file their story in five minutes or so because they never go back to it afterwards and this is a real problem and this is where some of the uh, misunderstandings and lack of facts arise from that they don't have instant access to all the real facts
1: mm-hmm. but Communication uh, is absolutely key certainly in a period of, of crisis and certainly in financial markets There's not, There are not, not only misunderstandings and I agree with you that we have to correct them as soon as possible but there are also rumors huh? rumors about that some countries will lose their AAA rating huh? and uh, if you, even if you say no, this is not the case it takes some time before people believe you in the markets and then uh, after some rating agencies said no, there is no problem no, no problem but in the meantime they cause a lot of trouble so there, is no, there are not only misunderstandings, and we can correct them, but there are also rumors that live their own life, they live their own life. And on some other issues, you can't give an immediate response. If we decide the 21st of July on a package of measures, we need the consent of 17, not governments only, and of, of parliaments. So, and it takes some time if we manage to have most of the parliaments agreed on the package by the end of September all those who are in politics say this is a major achievement most laws that take months before they pass the parliaments in in, in a lot of countries Germany, uh, France uh, Belgium and others they will agree in one month's time one month's time but it's not in seconds or in minutes. We are living in democracies. We are living in democracies. So you can correct misunderstandings. It takes a little bit more time uh, to give the right information on rumors, but on some other issues, yeah, you have to respect the procedures of the political world and of political democracies.
0: Final question. The lady here, please. Could you pass the microphone? Thank you. This is the final question. I'm very sorry. Thank you for the honor. Um, My name is Sarah Dalstin, I'm from the Swedish Embassy. Um, You mentioned, Mr. President, that um, this is the worst economic crisis since the 30s, but that we managed to avoid some of the pitfalls and consequences uh, from the last crisis, um, protectionism, etc. Then something else happened in the end of the 30s and in the 40s, as we all know, in, in Europe, I'm thinking politically, And um, just thinking if you see any, of course, not the same thing, but uh, any political risks. We have high uh, youth unemployment, uh, right wing extreme parties, um, populism, etc. Do you see any other risks than purely economical?
1: Thank Mm -hmm. you. But the recession uh, now was not as deep as in the 30s. Between 29 and nineteen thirty three industrial production declined by 25% in most of our countries. Now we faced a, res- a recession, I'm now speaking in terms of GDP, of on average in the European Union 4%. You can't compare that with uh, happened, what happened in the, in the 30s. Actually, the crisis of the 30s has never been overcome. It ended in the war economy and in the war. But you give me a very good argument that in a period even of populism the best protection to avoid conflicts to avoid major tensions between countries is is the European Union. And the big difference between the 30s and these days is that we have that kind of European integration. Even if a lot of people are taking it for granted. It's not because they have taken it for granted that it's not playing a major, a major role. Eh? The cost of non-Europe could be huge. But that you can never prove and you can never show. But I'm convinced <coughs> that is the case. And that's the big difference with the 30s and I'm happy with that difference.
0: Thank Ladies and gentlemen, I've just two things to say before we depart. First of all, I would ask you all to remain in your seats until the President has left because he's a a heavy agenda and needs to move on. Secondly, on your behalf, I want to thank him for dealing so clearly, concisely with the most complicated subject and one that is naturally confusing to people. It may be surprising for an example to note that over the last three or four months the Euro has consistently strengthened against the dollar, notwithstanding the issues there. But uh, this uh, audience has shown, I think, both sides of the debate in the sense that there is a clear view on one side in favour of the whole project and there is also a view against the project and that's the political reality with which you deal so effectively. And uh, we thank you for it. We thank you for the immense energy that you are devoting to dealing with the most intractable and difficult time. And we're happy that you are both with us and uh, representing in that context such rational thinking in difficult issues. So uh, thank you very much for being with us.